Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Several weeks ago, Juan welcomed me into his chic, beautiful coffee shop in Northwest DC, so I could take photos for another episode. Juan invited me back to the roasting room, and as he taught me how to tell a lightly roasted bean from a dark, simply by listening to the beans, he also began to tell me the extraordinary story of his life. I asked question after question about his journey, how he always took the road less traveled, the risky, and the difficult path. At 12, when his classmates had completed their education and were beginning to even contemplate marriage, Juan begged his parents for the opportunity to leave his father's coffee farm at 2 a.m. every Sunday night to travel over a rushing river and two mountaintops to school. From that first difficult choice, with his parents' unfailing support, Juan won a coveted spot in a school from agronomists. After that, he returned to his region to effect change, not only as an educated agronomist, but also as an intuitive entrepreneur. Juan and 30 brave farmers risked everything to found the only coffee cooperative in Guatemala that is financed and led by Guatemalans. Leading with transparency and sacrifice, Juan has never taken a salary from the cooperative, although he found a way to provide insurance, disaster relief, loan assistance, and he grew the profits of the farmers in the cooperative over 40%. Most recently, he came with his American wife to the States, learned English, and followed a new dream to open a coffee shop selling cups made from the beans grown on the farms of the cooperative, including his father's farm. When I got home from his coffee shop that night, I gathered my family, sat them down, and told them they had to hear Juan's story right away. And now I'm equally excited to share it with you. The first thing I'd like to know, of course, mm-hmm. I you gifted me this delicious coffee from your father's farm. Was your yes. father always a coffee farmer, and therefore, did you grow up on a coffee farm? Yes. So my father uh, wasn't always a coffee farmer. Mm-hmm. So when he was uh, younger, he actually used to raise cows. Okay. So he... He grew up in a farm, but mm-hmm. not a coffee farm. It was a uh, corn farm, which was very common at that time in my town. Okay. So the uh, knowledge of coffee didn't get to Union Cantinil until my dad was um, about, I would say, 20 years old. Okay. So before that, you know, he went to school only to third grade. Mm-hmm. Once he finished third grade, he has a, uh, he had an obligation to work with his dad. Mm. My dad would work with him in the farm, raising cows and uh, taking care of them, like uh, as a shepherd, basically. Mm, so they kind of, they wandered. Exactly. Yes. So huh. he was just going to go with that little stick, you know, kind of guiding the the cows and 
but that that was common for everybody. For mostly kids, adults would uh, work in other labor, like you know, work in the crops like uh, mm-hmm. corn or beans. Is that because working in the fields was a little bit of harder labor, so the kids would have the easier job of kind of just exactly chasing the cows around? Okay. It was a it was a, a game, but they also. Uh, has responsibility. Like my dad would wake up at 5 a.m. to wow. milk the cows, and then he will have to take them out to the field. But in the side, my dad used to make the the ropes to mm. tie the the cows. Hmm. And he has told me that he was very good at it. Like he would do hmm. double of most kids. The raw material was this um, agave. Oh, uh huh. The leaves of the agave. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so that was his business when he was younger, probably like 15, 16, 17 wow. years old. That was his business in the side. And he tells me that he got to buy his first little cow, right? Baby cow. Mm-hmm. When he was still young, like 15, 16. Wow. And he bought it from a friend who, uh, his friend was older, like my my grandfather's age. But mm-hmm. he was his friend because he understood my dad better than my grandfather. Hmm. His friend had coffee farm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how he got interested in coffee. So my grandfather is not even the first generation farmer. My dad is the first generation his friend got older and he said, hey, um, Gonzalo, it's my dad, if you give me this much, I can give you this piece of land. So my dad basically bought a, his first piece of land from this friend when he was probably like 20 years old. And that's how he started. This is amazing because from what I know about your story, there's so many similarities between you and your dad, you know, so this is really interesting. What was it about coffee that made him say, I think I'm going to do something else? Did he think it would be more profitable? Was the labor easier? I think um, the labor was easier and um, Mm. um, he liked the fact that he could just plant the plants once and he would just have to take care of them every season. His friend told him, or he gave him ideas, that there were there was more money in coffee at that time, probably double, triple than corn. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a couple of follow-up questions. Sure. So a coffee plant, it's more ever-bearing, almost like a tree? It, it is a tree. Okay. Tell yeah. Yes. Tell so, me a little bit about this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So coffee comes from uh, some say from Ethiopia, uh-huh. and some say from Yemen. Ah. But the French brought it to the South America, uh, the French Guyana, and mm. the Brazilians got their hands on the plants, mm. and they took some of the plants as well. The Colombians took some of the plants. So there are two species of coffee. Hmm. It's the Arabica, like a modified plant, mm-hmm. but modified in the fact that it can adapt to uh, altitudes. Uh, okay. 
higher than, let's say, a thousand feet. Okay. And there is a robusta, which is the ones in Brazil and Vietnam that grow uh, above, right above sea level, or it can be really hot and no shade. Okay. The Arabica plants can be grown in altitudes up to 7,000 feet. Wow. And they need shade and a different type of soil. And uh, Arabica is the species that has the most flavor, most characteristics mm-hmm. uh, that people like. I see. Um, each one has their characteristics, but these are the, the, the ones that uh, are most liked by, by coffee connoisseurs. Uh, the uh, trunk is hard mm. as a tree, hmm. and it grows no more than, I would say, four meters, three and a half oh. meters. So then you basically work uh, with the plant in order for that plant not to go to that, that high, because then oh. it, it becomes difficult to, to harvest. Oh, so you okay. kind of like uh, prune it uh, mm-hmm. every year to keep okay. it reachable. And also yeah. improves the production. Okay. And then does it bear the fruit only at certain times of the year? Yes. So okay. there is only one harvest. Uh, the harvest season, it goes like for three months. Mm. In some cases for four months. It depends mm. the altitude. Okay. And in my region in Guatemala, which is called Huehuetenango region, mm. it starts in December uh, mm-hmm. all the way to March. And okay. it's not like the same plant produces more coffee. It's just that the cherries don't ripe at the same time. So that's why it lasts that long. Right. That's how, how it works. Okay, this is so, this is such an education for me. This is wonderful. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How many acres, how large of a farm did your dad buy? He he bought probably an acre at that Uh time. Since then, he's been growing it little by little, which uh, it's been a long time now, but he's been reducing the um, the size of the farm because it's also hard to find workers due to the the phenomenon of the migration to the United States. Okay. So it's right. uh, because they say, okay, I can go to the States and make $100 a day versus $5 a day. Yeah. And, and what with the Nango region is like the most affected by the migration. Okay. Um, uh, you know, the farm is being reducing year after year. But right now it's about 30 acres. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to get into there yes. in terms of your motivations. And we'll, we'll get into that. So just one sure. other question about when he switched to coffee farming. Was coffee kind of new to Guatemala at the time or just new to him? It was new to him and to the region. Okay. Uh, they knew about coffee, but they didn't think that they could grow coffee until somebody just decided to, I am, I'm just going to grow coffee. And it turns out it was really good soil, weather, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. altitude for, for coffee. Yeah. So right now we have some of the you know, best coffees in the world. Wow. 
So what was life like for you then? What did it mean to be the son of a coffee farmer as a child? Yeah, so it was very, very fun. So when I was probably six years old is when I started working, you know, with my dad. Wow. Because he asked me to, but it was something common, right? Mm. Like, uh, oh, I want to do what my dad is doing, Mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to school after school, I wanted to do what my dad was doing. So mm. I will help him and he will provide the tools for me to kind of play. But at the same time, I was learning how to help him. I have my chores, right? Mm-hmm. Like probably your kids have a home, like mm-hmm. wash your dishes, <laughs> your laundry. Mm-hmm. My chores were, you know, wash the coffee, take it out to fermentation from fermentation, you have to, so first is mill the cherries. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, we leave it for a night and ferment it. And after fermentation, it uh, loosens the mucilagus or mm. the, the honey that's in the, in the coffee. Hmm. And so it's easy to wash. Hmm. Uh, so I will have to wash the, the beans and then I have to dry them. And every day I have to like um, move them. Mm. We dry it under the sun. Mm. So every day we have to move it mm-hmm. to in order to evenly dry it. So that that was my my work basically. Mm. But I always loved. I don't know if my brothers would agree with me, but I always <laughs> loved um, harvest. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Everyone had their own strengths and weaknesses. And okay. uh, my witness was washing. It, uh, I couldn't do it how my dad. There was always a little something stuck to the beans you washed. Exactly. <laughs> What's the work like when you're not, when it's not harvest season? Um, so when there's no harvest season, there are other a lot of work, uh, actually, mm. um, pruning, weeding, and fertilizing. Unfortunately, without fertilizer, or, or I should say the um, blossom, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. The little flowers, they, they don't become uh, bean. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's just so interesting because I always, you know, I, I always hear a coffee bean, but really it, it goes from a blossom to a cherry. And then at what right. point does it become a bean? I guess when it's dried enough? Yes. Yeah. That's so interesting. So is coffee a stable crop? In terms of, if you ask me like economically, I would say depending on the amount of coffee trees you have, yeah. depending of how the market market is. Yeah. Uh, since it's a tree, it's more uh, resistant to the weather. Yeah. But uh, I would say it's stable um, as long as we have a good price and we have a, a market for it. Also, the biggest problem right now is the coffee roast, mm. which is... It has been very uh, troubling for farmers lately hmm. because so coffee roast is a fungus that is supposed to affect more in lower altitudes, right? Hmm. But here comes the tricky part because the climate change. Oh, the you know now the higher altitudes have become also hotter. 
Okay. So coffee roast is more adaptable now okay. to, uh, to higher altitudes. I would say five years or six years ago, we didn't have coffee roast. I would say 10 years ago, we didn't have coffee roast. But the weather has been very changing. And now uh, higher altitudes have been affected by coffee roast. Okay. And also, as I told you at the beginning, our harvest season starts in December, right? Yeah. That was before. Now it starts in October, November. Wow. So there's a, a lot of things. Wow. More, yeah. Uh, more than just uh, serving espresso. No kidding. Yeah. 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 So... Which brings us to the fact that you are an agronomist and the story of how you went from the son of a farmer to an agronomist. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> this is what I told my kids. You need to sit down and listen to this. <laughs> so tell us about what happened when you got close to middle school. Yes. Yeah, so in my small town at the time that I was uh, sixth in sixth grade, you know, there wasn't a middle school nearby. And also it's very common that many of the people who were my classmates, uh, they didn't go to middle school. They just, okay, I'm just working with my dad. Mm -hmm. Or the girls would say, okay, I'm just going to get married and have kids, which they did. At that, um, at that age? Yeah, I have, I have uh, some of my classmates, uh, Right now, they have grandkids. <laughs> and you're 30-something, aren't you? Yes, I'm 37. You're and 37 and you have classmates with grandkids. It was very common. Their parents mm -hmm. advised him that and that was yeah. fine for them. And but, would they mostly um, marry classmates, like people their own age, or were they marrying people much older than them? No, it, uh, it's mostly their own age. Probably a, a little bit older, but... Um, teenagers marrying teenagers. Right, exactly. It's not like... Right, yeah, I got Another you. person, okay, I like this girl. And, uh, yeah, no. yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there was no inspiration for anybody to go out and study or their parents. Nobody told them. But my dad was always different since the beginning. You know, he yeah. basically rebelled against his father, you know, choosing a different crop than he was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. And um, my dad always told, told me, like, uh, you know, every time I went to help him, I wanted to go to harvest. But harvest is always in the morning, like at six in the morning to one in the afternoon, because after one is really hot. So but my school ended at one. Mm. So I never was able to go and harvest with them because he would tell me, no, school first. And then if there is time, you can help me. So for him, education was something important. And I, I was inspired by that as well. You know, mm -hmm. before I went to primary school, my mom taught me how to read. Advanced and motivated. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, somebody told him about this middle school that was in another town. It was kind of like a pathway to a bigger school that prepared agronomists. Mm. Uh, at that time, I wasn't like 100% sure that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I liked the idea that, that, that I wasn't going to do what everybody was doing. Yeah. I was going to do something different. So I wanted that. Yeah. So we filled out the application. 
And my dad still asked me, like, are you sure? Because if you want to do this, it's going to be hard. And yes, it was really hard. Yeah, so tell us the about school that. was four hours away mm. from my house by foot. There was no roads. So what we would do is, you know, wake up at 2 a.m. Mm. and uh, start walking. Uh, mm. Sometimes it was raining, uh, a lot of mud. Mm. I had to carry my backpack with food mm. and clothes, clean clothes. Uh, mm. And my dad would carry other stuff uh, mm. in his back as well for our trip. These were over mountains, right? Yeah, so there was a river and two mountains that we had to to cross. First, you know, we would have to walk down, all the way down to the river. Mm. Uh, and to cross the river was also <laughs> an adventure because it was just <laughs> a tree across that oh uh, it was slippery and uh, you had to mm. find a way to cross it. And my dad would say, like, okay, go. <laughs> you know, mm. um, and, and the uh, river below was, it was flowing swiftly below. Like yes. if you fell in, it would have been pretty hazardous. Yeah, because it was raining. So all the river, um, you know, it became big. Uh, there was mm. just like one cable where you could, uh, you know. Hold on. Uh, hold on. But uh, once you cross that river, uh, it was uh, almost two and a half hours all the way to the top of the mountain. You know, the sun, it will start coming up uh, when we get to the top. And sometimes we would eat breakfast there. Mm. There were a lot of fruits in the, in the, in the, you know, on the way that we would just make a lot of fire and, <laughs> and wow. uh, cook some corn, which it wasn't ours. It was somebody else. Mm-hmm. Would um, that have been a problem if they saw you? Uh, no, it was very common. Uh, yeah. We had the same situation in our corn yeah. field as well it was very yeah. common okay mm-hmm. so the next year when a friend of mine joined the adventure of going to this school my dad wouldn't come with me and with him we would do four hours because we were slower <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh you know my dad would walk fast and like uh, say like hurry up hurry up we have to get there you know with that mm-hmm. voice and like, okay i'm going you know in a way that we have to be in time so you can get your first class. Yeah, one day with my friend, we came across of uh, like a two or three like a wild uh, boar. Wild like boars? Wild boars, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm still small, but I was smaller then. Oh, my God. And these yeah. guys were big. Oh, they must so, have weighed twice as much as you. Yes, definitely. They are really fast, too. Mm. So we started running and I lost my shoes in the mud. So when I got to the school mm. uh, without shoes and all muddy, all my friends in school were asking, what happened? You know, laughing and everything. Mm. But they also understood what happened and they were like, okay, everybody, let's go find Juan Luis's uh, shoes. So wow. everybody in my class, you know, we went to look for my shoes. Mm. <laughs> Mm, so they didn't look at you or you and your friend as the country folk and they were city folk. They were very supportive of what you were trying to do. So, yes. So they were very yeah. supportive and they understood. So did at any point during those three years, and forget this? 
I think when I said forget this was the first 15 days yeah. when I was away from my family. Actually, I, I cried. I remember crying oh. the first probably 15 days. That mm-hmm. I just, you know, wake up and like these people that I don't know. So it was challenging at the beginning. But then once you adapt, the other time that uh, I said forget this is when I just couldn't understand the math teacher. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I wasn't you know, the brightest, but I wasn't also at the bottom of the table. I was yeah. kind of in the middle. Mm. After that, uh, there was a, this opportunity where everybody can uh, take an exam to go to this uh, national school of agriculture. So it's very famous school in Guatemala. And I saw it as an impossible uh, dream at, at first. But everybody had a chance. So the worst that could happen to me is not get in. So now so, why why would it be impossible? Because there were only 10 spots from my school mm. to get in there. Mm. And there are only 100 spots in the school, 100 or 150. And, but there are 15,000 students who do the exam. That's incredible. So 15,000 students for 100 or 150 spots. Exactly. And so I, I was like, okay, it's 1%. I, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I can say I'm one percenter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked really hard to get in because I thought that, yes, I wasn't the brightest, but mm. that uh, I wasn't going to waste that opportunity. Mm. So I yeah. started really hard, double mm-hmm. than everybody. And so when, I when got did in. you do that? If you were walking, you know, all Sunday night, Monday morning, walking all Friday night, you're during regular school. When did you study? Weekends, mostly. So some, yeah. Yeah, in my third year, uh, the weekends, I would stay some weekends at this town. That way I would have time to study. And uh, of course, I had like very smart friends. Yeah. And uh, nobody was jealous because they thought, ah, no, he's not going to get in. So they would... <laughs> Tell me, you know, okay, this is how you do it. And I will learn and then practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. Mm. Um, study, study. And um, I guess I study more than they did because we were um, about 100 students in, the, in my class and only 10 got in. So wow. I was one of the first 10, which I never wow. went before. Wow. Mm. Uh, the principal of this school came one day to the class and said, okay, uh, here are the results. Mm. And my name was in the first 10. I was like, I got like very bad looks. Like, how does this guy get in? <laughs> was that hard for you or you just so over, o- overjoyed? I was overjoyed. Yes. I yeah. didn't care. Yeah. You're looking this way, but I don't care. I got in. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm going, you know, I was really excited. But then in this school, this is the National uh, School of Agriculture, there are two more exams uh, mm. in order to get in the, in the last filter. Okay. One of the exams is, is physical. You have to show that you are able to get up and uh, run and wow. go to work, like uh, work in the field and uh, work with cows, with chicken, with horses, with pigs. Amazing. 
like harvesting um, beans, for example. But wow. that was something that I was used to. That was that's okay. something. Yeah, that was an advantage you had over the city, the city exactly. people. That's that that was that was me. And then oh. uh, there is also like theoretical exams that mm-hmm. um, you went for fifteen days to mm-hmm. study there, mm-hmm. and uh, there were three theoretical exams. Um, and based on the results of each exam, you stay in the school. Wow. End, so once you get in, that's not the end of it. You just keep having to prove yourself. Exactly. Wow. So at the end of the 15 days, you can see kids crying and wow. also parents carrying their, you know, their mattresses to, <laughs> to the buses, the, the, their cars wow. and other, other kids uh, screaming of joy. It was uh, pretty interesting. I feel like it's what, you know, people experience when they go to boot camp. Yes. Yeah. It's a military style. Yeah. Um, It's a self-motivation. And Mm -hmm. to do business as well, it's also a lot of Mm self-motivation. What I would like to do is talk about your first foray into entrepreneurship. So you graduated, you an agronomist, it would have been easy to just go back to your father's farm, mm-hmm. use the knowledge that you had to kind of become the best coffee farmer in the town. But that wasn't enough. Tell me about what you did next. And especially what motivated you to take the risk that you took? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so that was my intention at the beginning. I'm going to mm-hmm. become an agronomist. I'm going to go back to my dad's coffee farming work there. But, you know, as I, you know, went through, you know, this middle school, which it's considering Guatemala, like kind of like a college. Yeah. Yeah. I was motivated to to do other things because I knew that even though my dad learned about the coffee production, no one of the farmers knew about uh, how to sell the coffee. Mm. And that was always it, it was always in my mind, you know, like mm-hmm. if there was a way, you know, to do better trading. From when you were young, even From, before you exactly. graduated. Yes, because mm-hmm. I always saw my dad just uh, asking the person who came to buy the coffee, how much are you paying? Mm. You know, that was the wrong business. Yeah, he shouldn't be asking. He should be telling, setting the price himself. Uh, it's like if I sell you a cup of coffee, I, if I ask you how much are you paying, mm. you will say, ah, one dollar. Mm. Oh, yeah, but it cost me one dollar to produce a cup of coffee. So they didn't think about it. They didn't think about the cost of production. Mm. And that was always in the back of my mind. So at one point, after having a job with a nonprofit, I just went back to my town and instead of you know, working in the coffee production, which they were already savvy. They, they knew about it. Mm. I worked on teaching them better ways to trade their coffee. You <laughs> went back to your father's farm. Hey, you guys can make more money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think you are you are losing money here. So I gathered 100 people in a, uh, like a big salon. So basically, 70 of those 100 said... Ah, this young kid doesn't know anything. I'm out of here. So they. So left. what was your offer? What was the offer that you put on the table? So my offer was that uh, <laughs> they had to give me their coffee <laughs> to go sell it. 
you know, no big deal. <laughs> I said, give me your coffee. I'm going to go sell it. I need 200 bags. Yeah. And um, that's basically that was it. Now, um, why were you sure that you could make more money for them than they were getting? Yeah. So before I went to my town, I spoke with a person who worked for a export coffee company. Just asking questions, agronomist to agronomist. How do, how do you know about the price? Like who manages the prices? And yeah. uh, where is the coffee price? Yeah. Uh, and the stock market. Why in New York? Why is it why is it managed from there? If my dad doesn't know anything about it, why is it there? And I was like, okay, if I bring you like a full truck of coffee, how much are you gonna pay me per bag? Yeah. And let's say that he said a hundred. Yeah. I talked to my dad, uh, dad, how much are you getting paid for this? It's like sixty. <laughs> so wow. forty less, right? Yeah, forty percent less. And why? Why were they getting less? Because somebody who had cash yeah. to buy coffee paid yeah. the farmers in cash right away. Yeah. And uh, this person would make basically 40% profit. Wow. Uh, and, and the exporter didn't care. They just wanted yeah. someone to bring coffee to them. And was because this the person... would sell it to a roasters in the States, like Pete's, yeah. Starbucks, and these big companies. Yeah. Where did the Guatemalans stop and foreigners pick up along the chain? Was the middleman Guatemalan? Was the exporter Guatemalan? Um, like where? Yes. Yeah, so everybody is, everybody there is, uh, so it's Guatemalan and Guatemalan money. Uh-huh. I guess the international part starts in the import. Okay. So okay. yes, most uh, unless you have a direct relationship with the farmer, but that's uh, that didn't start until like maybe like 2010, something like that. Um, but I, I figured that if I did that, you know, but I don't have cash to yeah. buy coffee. So what I have to do is I need a certain amount of farmers that trust me with their coffee and put in a coffee truck and bring it here without paying them. And tell them that mm. I'm gonna pay them after I sell the coffee. Mm. If it works, I will have shown them how it works. You know, yeah. But if yeah. it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, the other big risk was like, uh, you know, thieves. Sometimes yeah. the, the truck go very slow, and okay. there are thieves in the way, and they will steal your coffee, and then you will lose a lot of money. And I, okay. I was, you know, afraid of that, but that didn't happen. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so, so you were taking a risk and they were taking a risk big time. Yes, exactly. So some of the coffee was my dad's. So wow. My dad didn't have enough at that moment. Yeah. And I went to the exporter. I said, how's the price today? And mm. he said to me, I remember, uh, well, what I can pay you is this. I said, well, yeah, but the market says I can see the market right there. They have a like a little screen. Mm hmm. Well, it says, it, let's say, 130 or $1.30 per pound. Why are you paying me $1? Well, yeah, but, you know, this is, you were making the 30 cents in profit. Well, I said, well, that's a lot. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to the next, you know. The, the, wow. The, there are like 12 or 15 warehouses for the, the buy coffee. This came to me like right there. I said, okay, 
there are other 12 that can buy my coffee. It's good coffee. You, you, you tried it. You like it. So yeah. I'm going to go to somewhere else. <laughs> and so I asked the driver of the truck, okay, let's go in the truck, turn it on, and start, you know, turning it around. Yeah. And he did. And the guy comes out and, okay, I'm, I give you 10 cents more. And I said, mm, 15. Ah, okay. And from there, wow, I made uh, not only the 15 cents more per pound, yeah. but the 40% extra. Wow. And so those 15 cents that I was making extra were just savings for the future cooperative. Yeah. yeah. The 40% you passed right on to the farmers. To the farmers, exactly. But the 15 cents per pound you kept to build a business. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I never yeah. pay myself. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I was broke. Yeah. So tell me about <laughs> motivation here. Your motivation was not to become a coffee magnate. Right. Your motivation yes. was to help these farmers see that there was a different way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, show them that they could trust me and that there was a different way that they were missing. And uh, also my motivation was if I do this for two years, I can start paying my salary in two years from yeah. the funds of the, that uh, we are putting into the cooperative. So I started writing everything, you know, like uh, training some of the farmers how to do it, yeah. um, creating different ways to to, to create more um, funds in the cooperative, creating like small loans for mm. farmers when the dry months came, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have money. So we would give them loans that they could pay with extra coffee uh, mm. instead of taking it out of the packet. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we created a fund for um, disaster, we call it, uh, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. sometimes... Um, a member of the cooperative had a problem, like sometimes what okay. was very common is health problem. Yeah. And we yeah. have insurance there. So, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes it's very problematic. Yeah. So we created that as well. And a lot of other things that uh, someday I want to uh, write everything down and, and pass it to yeah. cooperatives in uh, all over. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. exactly. One, how did you know to do this? You didn't go to business school. No, I did after, after I learned all this. You, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you could have taught the classes. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I didn't know. Uh, you know, things just, ideas, you know, like, what yeah. if we do this? And mm. it would work, you know? Sometimes it wouldn't work because, you know, people just wouldn't return the money that they borrowed. Mm. Uh, we also bought a lot of fertilizer in bulk, okay. and then I sold it to the farmers at regular price, and yeah. all the money will, will go to the funds of the cooperative as well. I think I remember I told you we were the only the only organization, a community organization that wasn't created by a non-profit or international organization. Yeah. So um, talk to me about that. Talk to me about the comparison of something that's uh, initiated mm -hmm. by a native Guatemalan versus something that's initiated by, you know, an outside nation mm -hmm. or state. Yeah. So what's very common is that organizations, international organizations come and they, they, they have a 
clear uh, plan that how they think that uh, community growth is going to happen yeah. by creating cooperatives all over. Mm-hmm. So they provide the funds, they provide buildings sometimes, you know, they build a mm-hmm. $200,000 building with a uh, million dollars worth of machinery and equipment and uh, salaries. Mm-hmm. But the most important is how do you prepare people to work after you leave? And that's mm. the problem. Because they provide all this money, salaries and everything. And so, of course, it will work uh, at the beginning. But once these organizations leave after five years of working, these cooperatives, these organizations, community organizations disappear because they don't know how to work without somebody producing money for them. That's the I thing. see. And then how is that different from what you've done? Because you've been in the States for seven years, but your cooperative is still going strong. What's the difference? Yeah, so the difference is that, you know, they ap- appropriated their cooperative. They kind of like take it as their own. Uh, we don't have like board meetings. We had always, everybody in the organization was in the meeting. Everybody knows everything. Yes, we had a board, but the meetings weren't only with them. The meetings were always with everybody because everybody would provide insights you involve every single farmer uh, exactly. indoors, is what you're saying. Yes, every single okay. farmer was invited to the meetings, yeah. so okay. everything was transparent. Uh, if I got, if I bought an ice cream, I would tell them, ah, by the way, this I, I bought an ice cream. Oh, um, you were completely transparent with your finances. Yes, uh, to be honest, uh, in Guatemala, it's uh, corruption is very normal, uh, very common in the communities as well. Like, okay, the mayor is. Uh, his friend is the one doing this uh, building that, you know, those type of things. But since we started very transparent, it was very hard for everybody else to do something different because the the only thing they knew how to work in the cooperative was being transparent. So they still have their meetings with all, uh, with everybody still uh, required to provide receipts. Um, whoever is like uh, the head of the organization, he yeah. provides information of what the price is. He yeah. will never come and say, okay, the price is 100 and the price really is 120. Can I just ask, I mean, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus and I know we are getting very political here, so we can stop if it gets too sensitive, but <laughs> these organizations that come in, do you feel like they're coming in with good motives, but just bad practices in terms of not involving everyone? Or are you saying they never really intend to help the farmers? They actually do intend to only help themselves. No, I think they come with a good intent. Yeah. Um, uh, The mistake that most of these organizations make is that they don't train the community members. They train another, like, let's say an agronomist from the yeah. university, right? Who doesn't yeah. have any relationship with the community. Right. Uh, they train right. a doctor from the capital city, not yeah. a nurse from the community. So yeah. that's one mistake. And mm-hmm. the other mistake is that the corruption situation is like, it's there. And the difference is the or the leadership for your cooperative are actually, they are accountable to the farmers. 
Yes. Versus in these other organizations, the employees are accountable to the big international organization. And it's just so easy to exploit that. Exactly. Ah, exactly I see. So the farmers in okay. my association, they are working towards the development of their uh, own uh, farms. Yeah. Uh, but in order to develop their own farms, they have to work to build a, a cooperative where they can use the products from their farm to have better prices, per se. So yeah. they are not making money from the association. They're not getting paid. Nobody gets right. paid. Okay. So, so yeah. it's, it's a different model that, yeah. um, unfortunately, these uh, big international organizations are not aware of or not following, or it's easy for them to just, uh, I'm just going to hire, you know, yeah. five or six professionals mm-hmm. from the city and bring them to the community. And uh, they know Spanish. That's that's it. Right. And then they can um, say, like, look how well it did, because like you said, as long as they have employees, it's going to do fine. But then once they go, the employees leave and the farmers are in the exact same situation they were in before, except for maybe they've even been depleted. Exactly. Yeah, I've been so, I've been seeing this always like time after time after time. And I always uh, I kind of like roll my eyes no? <laughs> yeah, I can't do anything, but I know what's happening. Yes. OK. I understand that. So then when you made the decision to come to the States, first of all, why did you make that decision? And secondly, <laughs> did, was part of the struggle, you know, this idea of you're leaving behind a vulnerable cooperative? Or did you feel confident that the cooperative could continue to exist without you physically there? So, yes, um, that was 20... 20- 10 or 2011 probably when I decided okay, okay uh, the cooperative can run itself and I made sure before I left to have a democratic election mm-hmm. I basically asked everybody to nominate someone to run the organization they did it mm. uh, so I left confidently that they were going to succeed but also, I never uh, separated. I always mm-hmm. told them, like, for anything that you need, just call me. And the answer, I'll come here and, you know, work with you. But I need to work because I'm broke. That's what I told them. Yes, <laughs> because you had never taken that salary. And I was also broke because my business failed. So I, during that time, also, because I'm an agronomist, I learned how to grow chicken. I had a chicken farm, uh, about 3,000 or 5,000 sometimes uh, chicken. Um, But there was a hurricane and wiped everything out. So I lost not only the product, but um, some equipment as well, like a car. You know, those were all my assets. Um, So the only thing I didn't lose was my death (laughs) to the, (laughs) the bank. I was still there. So, yes, I went broke at that time and I needed a job. And the only job I found was in a town two hours away, which at that time I didn't want to work anymore. So I decided I'm going to go live there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you'd have enough of walking yes. across rivers and over mountains. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I really think this is such an important thing to acknowledge. You had done a lot 
for, at that point, a couple of hundred farmers. And Mm -hmm. it would have been very easy and even reasonable to say, okay, I've proven myself to you. Now you, yeah, now you guys start paying me a salary. But you, your convictions were so strong that no one would ever make money off of this. Like you saw that as a clear path to corruption. So you were willing to leave something healthy and thriving in the hands of someone else and start all over again yourself. Yes. That, That is really amazing. I think that that just took a tremendous strength of character. And it does show, again, how pure your motives were. Your motives were not to build something for yourself. Your motives were to build something for farmers that you saw being cheated. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, So you started all over. I started all over, yeah, because uh, so because I wasn't taking a salary from the cooperative. You know, I needed a job, which I found in this town uh, two hours away. Mm. And that's when I met my wife now. So my wife is American. She mm-hmm. was a, a Peace Corps volunteer at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, when I met her, yeah, I wasn't in a good place. But, I mean, I could clearly see that uh you know we could have a life together but Mm. not here that was not planned i was like oh okay we can get married but we're gonna live here right and she Mm. was like "Mm." so Mm. my decision to come here to the states wasn't kind of my decision was yeah so she found a job here and um she told me you know i'm going back i found a job there but uh so we decided to get married, and we got married in Guatemala for a civil wedding. Mm. Um, and then she came to the States because uh, she started working. Uh, she, she came here like eight months before me. Once I had like a paperwork, mm. I came to live here in 2013. Then I started, you know, uh, process to, to become a citizen. I, you know, I just want to reiterate how much I admire you because, you know, you push through the middle school thing, you push through the high school thing, you push through those tough five years, and then it would be so reasonable to say, okay, I've pushed, I've pushed, and I've given everything that I worked for to you guys. Now you guys carry me a little bit, but you didn't do that. And you just, you're yeah. still not coasting. So <laughs> no, but so thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, you know, I would, I would, Say that yes, I work hard, but I would tell you that also when uh, I'm, you know, down sometimes here with whatever in the business, my wife always reminded me like, think about where you were and think about what what you have done. I think you can do yeah. it, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. a way that you know she motivates me. Yeah, my my employees actually uh, sometimes uh, how how to how do you self motivate, right? Yeah. Uh, so I tell them it's just uh you know if you want something just focus focus just, and sometimes sometimes there was there's gonna be something that will try to distract you but just focus easier easier said than done but you've done yes. it you've proven that it's possible so fast forward and tell me about the coffee shop that i saw the beautiful charming incredibly well decorated <laughs> Fragrant spelling (laughs) (laughs) place on First Street in Northwest DC. So uh, this shop came first an uh, an idea in 2015 when I went to Starbucks and I saw 
like pictures of farmers in the world. And I tried uh, coffee that said it was from Guatemala, but it didn't taste like. Mm. Um, and I was like, uh, one day I want to have a shop where I can put the pictures of my family. Oh, wow. Uh, that was the first thing. And like you said, it's easier said than done. Yeah. It took me until 2018. And with a lot of help of my wife to mm. uh, find a place to find financing, to get into farmer's markets uh, in order to make this uh, dream a reality. So we got a grant from the D.C. mayor's office. Oh, wow. Um, and mm-hmm. that's how we started. But the grant was one thing, you know, you have to invest in other things. And so mm. we have been, uh, I mean, I've been doing a lot of the work in the shop myself. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a lot of YouTube. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Focus? You just stay focused. <laughs> just stay focused. Yes, exactly. And mm. uh, my wife was the one with the ideas, you know, like uh, the packaging, the labeling. Mm. The placement of equipment, the placement of tables, chairs, mm. and what to do in the walls, and all of that was all my wife. Well done yes. to her because <laughs> it looks amazing there. I mean, really. Uh, yes, yeah, it is. Thank you very much. Uh, now that we have the shop, uh, it has been well received uh, in the neighborhood. Um, and so, what we do here is that we roast the coffee that we bring from my dad and other farmers, members of the cooperative that I yeah. founded in 2007. Nah. So all that work, then it's, you know, it's becoming, uh, it has given fruits, right? Yeah. It's uh, yeah. all that work. So yeah. I pay them 40% more than the uh, market price. Unbelievable. Uh, the market price being 40% more than the middlemen that used to buy them. So... A lot more. So it's, yeah, they're making more. And again, just to reiterate, this isn't because you've figured out some secret to financial success for yourself when you pay others more. You're just willing to make less to pay them more, right? Yes, exactly. Any coffee company can do that. Yeah. But they don't do it because, I mean, they, I understand they have to pay bills, they have to, you know, take care of their kids. Me too. But, you know, who provides the product that we consume, you know, they make it $5 a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I see big companies that are becoming here in, in coffee companies. Uh, they don't need those $5. They can give it uh, give it to the farmers. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to blame them because I don't know their motives, but uh, I'm doing my own thing, yeah. which I think it's fair. And one day I want to have a better, you know, situation for me. But for now, I think if I build this from the ground up, hopefully it becomes a model yeah. uh, to follow. You know, growing in the States, it, it, it's, it's hard to understand the hardships that the farmers go through. Right. Well, and that's, that's where I'd kind of like to turn the conversation and hopefully finish up here. I would say the vast majority of those listening to this do drink coffee. We are consumers. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to consumers? What would you um, say to us? So um, one thing that I've learned um, living in the state is that life is very comfortable mm. here. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we have the coffee shop nearby, which is very comfortable for me to walk or mm-hmm. to pay one dollar for a big cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. But just think Guilty. that if your coffee is cheap, uh, the taste is going to be cheap. Mm-hmm. And the farmers who harvest that coffee is just struggling. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. It's not that my product is a the Louis Vuitton of coffees, <laughs> but it's a <laughs> fair coffee. I mean, I'm not... Uh, you know, selling a $16 bag just because I want to make money. But I, I think that's the price to that gives me the uh, like a little bit of financial uh, freedom to pay more to the farmers. Yeah, yeah. How can people find your shop and can they order your coffee? Yeah, so uh, to order online, uh, we have an online store at lacoupecoffee.com, and uh, they can find us in D.C. Uh, in um, 5505 1st Street Northwest, and Instagram, we are lacoupecoffee, and Facebook, lacoupecoffee, uh, and it's spelled L-A-C-O-O-P. Well, I really want to thank you. Just want to reiterate, I could not admire you anymore. I very ah, deeply admire you. Well, I've been just a pleasure for me to to talk about this and, you know, uh, what we do. And I really, really, really love your, your photos. <laughs> I'm so glad. The pleasure has been all mine. And I do want to reiterate that it was a wonderful, wonderful cup of coffee. <laughs> Although yeah, I am, it. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that in the fresher beans, the caffeine must be stronger because I couldn't sleep all night. <laughs> I got up, my husband and I walk every morning and I got up and I said to him, I think I'm still caffeinated from that coffee yesterday. <laughs> you probably were, yes. <laughs> oh, so thank yes. you for an amazing cup. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you so much to Juan for sharing his story today. You can find photos of his shop as well as all his contact information on the storiedrecipe.com, the episodes tab. And while you're there, stop by the page with all the information about the crowdsourced Thanksgiving episode that we're producing together. I'm calling it a Thanksgiving tapestry because each and every short memory is a thread and all of these stories together will give us a picture of what Thanksgiving means to so many people across the U.S. As you know, the listeners of the Storied Recipe podcast are quite an international audience, and I've received over a dozen notes from global listeners that are so excited to learn about this holiday that they've only ever seen celebrated on TV. So contributions have started coming in, and I really want your favorite story. We need every thread in this Thanksgiving tapestry, so make sure you submit this week. Again, information is available on thestoriedrecipe.com. All you need is 90 seconds and a phone. You don't even need to know which memory you're going to share yet. I have plenty of prompts that you can choose from on the website. Thank you so much and have a great week, my friends.